when we are talking about things like BPA or parabens or phthalates, which we are also exposed to and are also used in thousands of places, those chemicals are not persistent. They don't build up in the body. So we actually don't need to, quote, detox them. We don't need to do sauna therapy. We don't need to take any supplements. We don't need to do anything. What we need to do is minimize the exposure that we are getting. So oftentimes people like to use the bucket analogy and the, the half-life of these non-persistent chemicals in the body is like six to 12 hours. So like within a day, our bodies can actually metabolize and we just pee these chemicals out. Now that's not to say that, oh, I can just pee it out, means that it's okay that we're being exposed because even in the short amount of time that they are in the body, there is enough research now that shows that they're causing problems. Girl, you've got questions questions about your body and how to feel good in it, about your hormones and how to keep them in check, questions about your sex life and your whole health. Can you imagine having a best girlfriend who was also a triple board certified OBGYN, a girlfriend doctor you could call and ask or tell her anything, someone who could show you how to live any stage of life before, during, or after menopause in a big, bold, and beautiful way. Well, friends, I'm your girlfriend doctor. I believe you were meant to flourish and shine, to embrace life and awaken to all its possibilities. Let's get there together. Welcome to our show. It's so common that we hear about endocrine disruptors. And what's uncommon is that there is no true, clear guidelines and support around it. What is unfortunate is that the FDA continues to allow hormone disruptors, endocrine disruptors, toxins into our system. In a study published as far back as 2010, so 13 years ago, it looked at umbilical cord blood. And I'm an obstetrician, and I always say that the safest place in the world to be is inside a mother's womb. It is the absolute safest place. However, recognizing that in this study of analysis of umbilical cord blood, they found over 267 chemicals, 180 something of them were known to be toxins, hormone disruptors, and even carcinogens under those categories. And that's frightening. It's estimated that by the time we leave the house in the morning, a woman on average has put on over 100 chemicals onto her body. If you look at all the many ingredients and that are common disruptors that we do have to start avoiding. And so we're going to talk about that today to kind of clear up the confusion, to set forth some guidelines and to, and to support you on your journey to have clean living, right? To be empowered, to have a physiology that's resilient to cancer, that, you know, inflammation, what's that? Mood swings, what's that? I mean, hormone disruptors affect us in so many ways. And I always joke, my daughter, Ava, you know, who's a teenager now, she goes, mom, my girlfriends all have problems with their periods. I don't have any problems with mine. I'm thinking to myself, well, yeah, I can kind of tell when your periods come in and that's when I'm handing you those smoothies and extra shot of my, Mighty Maca before you walk out the door. <laughs> but I'm really like focusing on eating at home more and all of that. 
definitely motivated to keep hormone balance. Hey, hey, with four daughters, I got to keep hormone balance in the household. And so it's true. And now with a granddaughter in my house, like I am so conscientious, what are we putting on her skin? What's going in her body? What is the research behind the recommendation? And very passionate about very passionate about that as as my daughter is as my you know daughter is very clear on what she wants her baby to have and not have so including organic food and a grass fed grass finished beef and uh, to learn about these things and how our you know legislation has downplayed the importance of whole food real food and makes growers organic growers and grass fed farmers regenerative farmers you know, have to go jump through hoops to identify their products in this way. When apparently now legislation was passed that if a cow has been or an animal has been one day eating grass, that is a grass fed animal. So therein lies your confusion as a shopper. I completely get it because I didn't realize that too. I'm like, oh, grass fed, great. But those guidelines have been smudged, smudged for profit, smudged for legislation, smudged for political agendas, all of these things. And it's, it's really not fair to you, the consumer, and it's not fair to our legacy, our unborn children or our unborn grandchildren. And so I, today I'm bringing you Lara Adler, and she is an environmental toxins expert and an educator and a certified holistic health coach who teaches health professionals of all types and individuals with health-based businesses to better understand the role of environmental chemical exposures in causing or contributing to chronic health issues so that they can more comprehensively support the clients and patients that they serve. So she combines environmental health education and business consulting, and she helps people around the world. Her Instagram is environmental toxins nerd, environmental toxins nerd. So from a place of high admiration for what she does, I want to introduce you today to Lara Adler. Here we go. Well, welcome, Lara, to the Girlfriend Doctor Show. Thank you for having me. I am excited to, to get a little nerdy with you. <laughs> me too. I love it. So, well, what brought you to, the, to be so passionate about environmental toxins? Is there a personal story that you can share with us? You know, there actually isn't. It's, it's kind of funny. I think a lot of people come to the health space, to doing work in this space because they have their own health challenge. I actually didn't have that. I was always interested in food and nutrition and health from an early age. I had, you know, was vegetarian and then vegan and then neither of those things anymore, but I was for many, many years. And that sort of pulled me into learning about food and nutrition and farming and the, you know, agribusiness and CAFOs and all of, all of that. And, and, and was really fascinated by that. You said CAFOs, what is CAFOs? That is a concentrated animal feeding operation. So those big feedlots for, you know, cattle and pigs and the pollution that is produced by those that pollute groundwater, that pollute the air in the communities um, where those operations exist. It's like the complete opposite of regenerative farming. Complete opposite. So true, right? Yeah. The feedlots and the mills and the dairy barns and the chicken pen. So yeah. I got a visual for that. Thank you. Yes, exactly. Now you also said you're no longer vegan vegetarian. Tell me about that. 
You know, it, I was vegan for almost 20 years. I was vegan for 18 years and I really thought it worked for me. And, you know, my, I didn't actually do it for health reasons. I did it exclusively for ethical reasons initially. And, you know, I started to see a lot of, there was actually two things that kind of turned me away from that. The first I think was um, really seeing a lot of the kind of vitriol and anger and animosity and just really terrible behavior of people in the vegan community that I was surrounded by at the time. I remember in my early days of doing health coaching, I was living in New York City. I had a nutrition blog, I had a food blog, and I was writing about seasonal eating. And even though I was vegan at the time, I was still talking about animal foods and that there's a seasonality to you know, harvesting is not the right word. I haven't had this conversation in so long. So, but you know, there's a seasonality to meat, to animal foods. And I was doing a, a talk and it was public. And I had people that were threatening me that were showing up at the back of my talk, standing there with their arms crossed, glaring at me. And it felt really unsafe. And I was like, how is this? How is this okay? And then it was actually reading about, I was really into baking and all of the vegan cookbooks at the time were, were using earth balance margarine, which was super popular at the time. Yep. Huge uh, in the margarine space. And I was learning um, as I was in nutrition school and health coaching school, all about margarine, which I had never given thought to before. The things and, we did thinking they were going to be better oh, for us. Course, oh my gosh. Right. And I honestly, there wasn't even like, yes, sure, the health, the health aspects of margarine, you know, yes, that caught my attention. But at the time, the thing that really caught my attention was margarine is often uh, used, uh, made using palm oil. And palm oil production is the primary cause of habitat destruction for orangutans in the wild. And I kept going, well, how is that vegan? Like literally, it doesn't actually have animal products in it, but it is destroying the habitat of endangered animals in the wild. And it kind of, and so I kind of was thinking, earth balance according to whom? Like literally. And so I wrote about how I thought grass-fed, pastured butter was more quote unquote vegan than margarine. And I had people threat again, threatening me. It was so violent. It was the first time on the internet that I'd been sort of the, in the crosshairs of people's aggression. And it was scary. And I just was like, you know what? I just can't be part of this community. This is an incredibly myopic, a very privileged view of the world. I've traveled all over the world. I've had that privilege in my life. And I've been to, you know, developing countries. I've seen, you know, people with elephantitis begging on the streets of India. I've been to um, open air abattoirs in China. I've seen how people live around the world. And it's, like I said, it's an incredibly privileged perspective. But I think the view or the lens of veganism in developed countries, in particularly in the United States, is that this is the best way to eat. And I think that that erases the cultural importance of food, um, the economic access of people. Not everybody can afford, not everybody wants to eat that way. And I just, all of these things together kind of turned me away from that. And then, you know, I just, I kind of tiptoed my way in back to eating animal foods. And now 
I regularly eat animal foods and I feel better for it. I had lots of blood sugar issues when I was vegan. And uh, yeah, so that was sort of my journey um, into this, you know, away from being uh, vegan. Well, it's important to talk about because there's many, again, there are so many camps. People get into a camp. I will say you get into the keto camp, you get into the paleo oh, yeah. camp, you get into the vegan camp or vegetarian yes. camp. So my, you know, my last book is called Menu Pause. And I always say there are magic in the, there's magic in the pauses of our lives, but there are five different menu plans that each pause something. And one of them is a vegan plan because oftentimes our vegan vegetarians don't get enough protein, number one, and they're getting way too many carbs. So they're, you know, maybe drinking and eating the best fruits and vegetables, but their blood sugars through the roof. And I've treated them as diabetics and with significant yeah. hormone balance and muscle issues and osteoporotic issues. I mean, the consequences to everything, if like, and like to have that perspective that doesn't innately listen to what your body is wanting you to yeah. do or what it's asking for you to do. And there are seasons, and the other reason that I put vegan plan is there in there because many people never take a break in eating meat sure. and we need to take a break in eating meat. We need to give our body a rest. We need to feed and, and promote healthy, diverse microbiome and challenge them. And, you know, I, I, I think this, I'm an obstetrician, so I like to give obstetric analogies every once in a while. And this one comes up because as a resident at Grady Hospital in Atlanta, downtown, it was the, the inner city hospital. And it, you know, to, today, it's one of the best training centers for physicians. And so, you know, I noticed as a first year resident doing obstetrics, I'm like, gosh, these crack cocaine babies have APGAR scores of 10 out of 10. Like I never get those 10 out of 10 at the, you know, at the, you know, the Emory hospital or one of the Piedmont hospital, I mean, I'm there, or, you know, our moms that are you know, drug free and have been on bed rest or whatever, those babies sometimes have lower APGAR scores, like what's going on here. And the attending physician said it's because it's stress physiology. When you have that stress physiology, they're more robust. They're more adaptable. I mean, they come out shouting their heads off and like ready to take charge in the world. They've been, you know, so they, I don't, consequences later on, I am not promoting sure. cocaine yeah. in pregnancy. Let me be yeah. really clear. Yeah. I am not promoting that. But, <laughs> but what was interesting is, I mean, that was just interesting thing. So we think about that for our gut microbiome. I mean, our, and I talked to Dave Asprey about this and as we get into arguments, but he's like, okay, the natural propensity of humans is to be lazy, right? We are naturally lazy humans human being. So that's every part of us, our gut's going to get lazy and it's going to, you know, like want what's familiar and what's regular. And then you get less diversity. The more diverse gut microbiome we have, the stronger immune system we have, the more resilience we have as individuals. And that's true. Like to say, this is the one way. I mean, there are populations, culturally diverse populations and ways of eating around the world, food that's been developed regionally. And we look at that for ourselves and learn that. I, created my product, Mighty Maca, organic Peruvian maca. Key is Peruvian maca because Chinese maca is not the same thing. Yeah, Grown yeah. in a different area, same name of a food, completely different. And going back to, and I just come off, you know, I was a vegetarian for many years as well from age 15 till about age 30-ish. Uh, 
and switch from a pure vegan to very quickly to a lacto-ovo, not knowing a dairy sensitivity, then every once in a while having some fish, but avoided red meat, white meat for, for many, many years. And it, I had the hardest time losing weight. I had hardest time maintaining muscle and, you know, and I thought I could have salad and dessert and I'd be good. <laughs> Not so down. no, there's no, and I was a med student at the time, you know, I, up and through my years of, of medical school at the time. And then I, I started eating meat. I mean, I just, I just wasn't as healthy as I could be. And plus my body was really, really craving it. So yeah. I think there's it just, again, listening, there's a time and a space for everything and there's a right way and a wrong way. And so in my books, I try to show a right way to, and that all of us should take a break in eating meat. And I just came from the conference in Austin called KetoCon. So it's definitely a very meat centric conference. And we had a lovely panel of regenerative farmers who talked about, you know, what I uh, alluded to in the introduction, that all grass-fed beef are not the same, but yet they can put that label on there because the FDA lifted any requirement of lifespan being grass-fed or to the exclusion, exclusion of grain-fed. So they can be grain-fed their whole life and then be put out to pasture for a day and there's a grass-fed animal. Again, as consumers, we have to keep voting with our dollar, with our consumer spend. So talk about the difference between regenerative farming and- Well, I mean, I, I'll, I, can, I can summarize it, but this is, it's not, it's definitely not my area of expertise. But, you know, regenerative farming is essentially trying to, I look at it as the leave no trace method or let's leave the place better than we found it is that kind of a steward of the earth. So regenerative farming um, really does, you know, take into account um, inputs. Um, it's minimizing or eliminating things like pesticides, which is the area that I have more information on. And, you know, it's, it's really trying to mirror the natural, uh, you know, behaviors of animals as ruminants and, you know, eating grass and being outside. And to, to look at that animal products through the toxicity lens, you know, this is a, a challenging conversation because it's not something that we can ever fully escape because a lot of the um, toxics that are in our environment, um, in particular, the highly persistent ones that are legacy chemicals or that have an incredibly long half-life that are very fat soluble, um, those are going to be present in all animal foods, regardless of whether or not they are farmed using regenerative, uh, raised using regenerative practices or all 100% grass fed because these chemicals are just in our environment. However, the animals that are raised in that more concentrated, the CAFO, the you know, feedlot style, they have um, less activity, they're fed foods that are not natural to them, corn, soy, etc. Um, and so they have a higher fat content and that higher fat content is where a lot of those toxic chemicals live. So if we're looking at trying to minimize our exposure to toxics, at least that we're bringing in via our food, although both will still have some of these chemicals, it stands to reason, and I don't know if, how much research there is about the differences between, you know, a standard meat and a regeneratively farmed meat in terms of things like PCBs or dioxin levels. But I would 
imagine that the levels would be less simply because there's actual less fat deposition in those animals because of their diet and the way that they're raised. And so I always am, have a little bit of concern about folks that are doing carnivore diet or hard keto diet that has a lot of animal fats in it because there is risk of higher levels of exposure to some of these more toxic compounds. I remember having a conversation with someone years ago and their sort of go-to was sardines. They're like, I eat two cans of sardines a day, which I don't actually like sardines. So that was gross to, for me to hear. I was like, well, but, and I asked him, I was like, where do your sardines come from? And he's like, well, I don't know. And I said, well, you should probably find out because sardines are very high in fat. And that's great. It's good fat. It's fat that we want. However, some sardines, because of the region in which those fish live and swim, have really high levels of PCBs. And so what's the trade-off? PCBs are incredibly toxic. And so there's a, there's a balance here in this conversation that really is pervasive through all aspects, whether it's, you know, we were talking earlier about sunscreen or water contamination. Like there's, there's so many layers to this conversation and it's never black and white and it's never a hard prescription or prescriptive approach. We just do the best that we can. Let's talk about some of those. So first of all, PCBs, what are they and what are they found in? Uh, PCBs are poly chlorinated biphenols. It's a large class of hundreds of compounds. They are on the Stockholm Convention list of, you know, highly toxic, highly persistent chemicals that are banned. They are no longer produced. They used to be used in refrigerators and electrical equipment. They were phased out of use in the 1970s because of their toxicity. However, they're highly, highly persistent. Um, that means that they don't break down. They build up in um, adipose tissue and fat tissue in our bodies, in animal bodies. And so they are still present. They are still being measured. The levels have started to slowly kind of decrease over time, but they are still present. Many of them are carcinogens. Many of them are endocrine disrupting. And our primary source of exposure to PCBs is through animal foods. It's through high fat foods, things like butter and cheese, because those are concentrated sources of fat. So, you know, this is the complicated side of the conversation, right? So we were talking earlier before we started recording about what are the things that people can do to reduce exposures. PCBs is a tricky one because they are just there. If you eat seafood, which is in a lot of instances can be incredibly healthy. It's a sustenance food for a lot of communities around the world, and those can be high in PCBs. So it's a, it's always a yes and in this how, conversation. So how do you clear them from our system? How do we that's, clear them from our fat? How do we help uh, remove them? Yeah, so that's actually quite challenging. I think I'll say it this way, and then maybe we can steer the conversation to things that actually have easier solutions, because I think this side of the conversation tends to be overwhelming for people. So PCBs are something that are hard to get rid of in our bodies. It requires, generally speaking, working with a licensed medical professional who understands detoxification and who understands the appropriate methods used and supplements and tools used to remove these chemicals from the body. Um, sauna can be helpful for some types of PCBs. Um, it's not going to get rid of all PCBs, but if we have sort of subcutaneous fat that has some of these compounds that's, you know, right under the surface of the skin, those, that's the fat that's going to break down a little bit during sweating uh, for sauna. 
So, you know, sauna is indicated for people that have PCB exposures, really high PCB exposures, which has been used in assassination attempts, interestingly, poisoning. Some, I think of some Russian diplomat or operative or something. I'm not sure remember the specifics of uh, that particular case of somebody who was given a high dose of PCB exposure as, as an assassination attempt. He had to, this is actually an interesting uh, story, he was given a type of fat called olestra. Mm-hmm. Um, olestra is, uh, if you remember, this kind of came out in like, I think the early 2000s. The Lay's potato chips with olestra. And, yes. Mm-hmm. They were in Lay's potato chips and they were marketed as a, as a type of fat or a type of oil that it didn't gain any weight. And the molecule of olestra was actually too large for our digestive system to absorb. So they were like, oh, you can eat as many as you want and you're not actually absorbing any of this fat. And that was the sort of, that was the marketing hook. The problem is that the, it, it moves so quickly through the digestive system that it would result in anal leakage was the is the terminology. So like um, you would just leak oil and fecal matter out of your backside. Really unpleasant side effect of a potato chip, literally not worth it. However, these olestra was also happened to be really good at grabbing onto some of these PCBs and exiting them out of the body. And so that was actually the intervention for this um high, uh, highly toxic amount of PCB exposure was part of um, the treatment plan. Um, Oh, wow. That's fun. That's amazing. Pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely would think activated charcoal, high spirulina, chlorella, phase one and phase two detoxification support, all of that together. Yeah. I mean, those things can help. I think the hard part with fat soluble uh, toxins is they often get recirculated. So they enter that enterohepatic recirculation process. So um, they're easily reabsorbed back into the body because the body doesn't, you know, it's, it's when you're, when you're losing weight, this is a really common thing that happens is that it's suggested some, there's some research that suggests that the yo-yo weight coming on and coming off may be a product of toxicity that is now recirculating back into the system, they're fat soluble. There's some research that suggests that that this is a defensive mechanism by the body to sequester these fat soluble toxins in adipose tissue. So they're not getting into your brain and your other sort of primary organs and, right? (laughs) And so if you have all of these fat soluble chemicals and you've lost weight, the body's going, well, shoot, I better put on, we better pump out some more fat cells to go grab onto those toxins and keep them out of circulation. So it's that's, oh, that's okay. so terrible. But definitely, I mean, that's what we'd say obesogens, right? These are yes. obesogens. And now we have the whole category of them that are multiple. So PCBs are one of them. What are what are some of like, how do you get rid of pair? Like a couple of the other ones that I certainly know of are the phthalates and parabens. Yeah. So, so in our cosmetics see. in our plastic bottles, if yes. we're drinking out of plastic, we're going to get phthalates. And so let's talk about the, the very common toxins that we do have remedies. Uh, it's yeah, still hard. So the, you can look at environmental chemicals as kind of falling into, are they persistent or non-persistent? So PCBs persistent, PFAS chemicals, the non-stick chemicals, water-resistant chemicals persistent. Things like bisphenols. Okay, phthalate. so PFAS, you said that's Teflon, right? Yes. Well, that it's it's te- so Teflon is a brand name. Teflon is like Kleenex is tissues. 
So it's just a trademark name, but it's the primary one manufactured by DuPont. They're one of the uh, companies that sort of pioneered this technology, which is why we all say Teflon when we're talking about nonstick, but there's lots of nonstick coatings that aren't Teflon. But yes, this nonstick coatings, they're pervasive. They're used in tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of um, applications in consumer products. They are persistent as a class. They don't break down or they break down incredibly slowly. Um, they're linked to a long list of health effects. They are harder to deal with. That is a challenge. That is our sort of uh, generation's um, uh, uh, DDT. It's a, it's, we're going to be dealing with it for the rest of our lives, our kids' lives, our grandkids' lives. It's here. But when we are talking about things like BPA or parabens or phthalates, which we are also exposed to and are also used in thousands of places, those chemicals are not persistent. They don't build up in the body. So we actually don't need to, quote, detox them. We don't need to do sauna therapy. We don't need to take any supplements. We don't need to do anything. What we need to do is minimize the exposure that we are getting. So oftentimes people like to use the bucket analogy and the, the half-life of these non-persistent chemicals in the body is like six to 12 hours. So like within a day, our bodies can actually metabolize and we just pee these chemicals out. Now that's not to say that oh, I can just pee it out, means that it's okay that we're being exposed because even in the short amount of time that they are in the body, there is enough research now that shows that they're causing problems. Additionally, so CDC does uh, human biomonitoring studies through NHANES. They look for chemical metabolites in urine and blood and serum and breast milk, semen even across population, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and NHANES has found metabolites of bisphenols in, I think, 93% of the population, phthalates in around 98% of the population. And so, and I don't know what the number was for parabens, but consistently, almost everyone. And the reason for that is likely not because they're not persistent, but because we're being exposed to them constantly every day. And so given no new exposures, we can lower the levels in our body or reduce the levels in our body significantly because our body's going to pee them out anyway. But if we're adding, I always think of it like the I Love Lucy clip of the chocolates on the conveyor belt. Oh yeah, I love that one. One right? of my like favorites. She can't keep up. They're coming in. She's shoving them in her shirt. She's putting them in her mouth, right? Like they're coming in faster. So no amount of her eating them or hiding them is going to stop them coming in. And so the solution to the I love Lucy problem is to stop the conveyor belt. That's right. it, right? Like that is what the goal is. And we actually have good research that shows that when people swap out their personal care products or, you know, change their diet, for example, those levels will drop significantly in like within a three to five day, three to seven day time period really, really quickly. Why? Because they're not persistent and our bodies can process them out. So that is our intervention, right? It's not a detox. It's not a supplement. It's a behavior change. And that can be challenging for people because it's, you know, we have, oh, this is the laundry detergent that I've used for my whole life and I don't want to change it. And okay. So it's more of a psychological shift, a mental shift than it is doing a physical intervention. Yeah, yeah, no, it's so true. And then the pesticides and herbicides. So well, they fall in that know, same category. They're they're non-persistent, right? So most pesticides, you know, 
in the 1970s, we phased out of using organochlorine pesticides. That was DDT, right? It was falls into that category. Those were phased out because they were so persistent. And so we switched to a different class of pesticides that had less persistence. That's organophosphate pesticides, which is what we primarily use now. Those are less persistent. They're not less toxic. They're just less persistent. They're differently toxic. Mm. And so, you know, there are at least six or seven studies, their diet intervention studies that have looked at both in adult, adults and in children that say what happens when we switch from a conventional diet to a mostly organic diet, not 100% because that's hard. And what they see is metabolites of these pesticides in the urine drop between 80 to 90% nice. in three to five days. Nice. Yeah, clarifying. So important. And then in like we talked touched on and mentioned to the sunscreens, the yes. sun protection, like there are certain chemicals in sunscreens that are known carcinogens. So do you know those chemicals offhand? Uh, I mean, the primary ones that are used uh, in chemicals. So there's two kind of categories of sunscreens, chemical sunscreens and physical sunscreens. So chemical suns, I mean, technically they're all chemical, right? Because yeah. everything's a chemical. So I, I hate that name. It confuses people. But the chemical sunscreens primarily are using oxybenzone, uh, octinoxate, avobenzone. These are what they're using as a primary means to absorb UV rays. And, you know, there's oxybenzone in particular is linked to endocrine disruption. It's, it's a suspected endocrine disruptor. It's linked to skin allergies and skin sensitization. It's also linked to Hirschsprung's disease, which I, I don't know from your OB days if that's something that's familiar to you, but it's a congenital birth defect where if I'm remembering correctly, the intestines are not fully formed in utero. And so there's, it requires surgical intervention immediately because the, the int intestines are just leaking out into the body. I didn't realize that was connected to these oxybenzoates. Oxybenzone in particular, benzoprenone is the other, it's often called yeah. benzoprenone three, or I think is the, is the number. And so, you know, these are, we have alternatives, like we have options, right? And so this is where, yeah. Okay. So most uh, conventional sunscreens in the United States. In Europe, there's way more sunscreen uh, chemicals that are approved for use. I think there's around like 27. In the, in the United States, there's eight. And it's been eight for decades. And the EPA when, or sorry, the uh, FDA, because sunscreen is considered a drug because it has a, an effect uh, and it's regulated as such. The FDA has not approved any of these European ingredients for uh, inclusion in the US marketplace. And they say it's because they don't have enough research. It's like, yeah, but the EU takes a much harder look at these things. Right. Can you not just rely on their research? Why is the ego of like, well, we have to do our own USA research. And it's just so silly. And so we don't have great options in the marketplace in the United States. We have these chemical sunscreens, oxybenzone, octinoxate, uh, avobenzone, benzone. there's a couple of other ones um, in the chemical category. And then in the mineral, uh, physical category, we have like mineral sunscreens, which is primarily just zinc oxide. There's titanium dioxide. There's some question in the EU about endocrine disruptions with titanium dioxide in powder form. So I just tend to move away from titanium dioxide. But zinc oxide does not have 
endocrine disrupting effects. It does not have health effects. The molecule of zinc is too large to pass through the skin, which is why it has that white cast, mm -hmm. right? It's a physical barrier between the UV rays and your skin. And it's why people don't like those sunscreens, right? Because they leave a white cast. Now I will tell you, I actually have sunscreen on today right now because I live in the desert and I go out in the morning and I will burn in five minutes because I'm fair skinned. Um, yeah. So well, there's definitely a difference here. The sunscreen, no sunscreen, you know, believers. I definitely, if I'm going to be out for a long time, I will put on some sunscreen after a little bit, but typically it's a hat. It's a light shirt or yeah. a shawl, something like that to create a barrier, but to still get like to, so my Middle Eastern blood, I'm Middle yeah. Eastern and Portuguese. So I oh, yeah. need the sun, especially after a long winter. But I look at really, I look at really good brands and that are clean. And with the zinc oxide, I mean, it, it's a few ingredients and they're, they, we've come so far in creating really beautiful sunscreens that yeah. don't give you that white reflective glow and because they're doing it in micro particles, they've yeah, figured out great ways to get them to be good barriers and other, other great skin barriers too. So definitely check your health food store because that's typically a good place. Look for any ingredients that say oxobenzene in a, in a pinch. If you have to use something better than getting a sunburn. Yeah. But ideally yeah. you want to avoid those on a regular basis and look at what's in your skincare. You know, look at what's in your skincare. I had a med spa, so wrinkles, sunspots, aging are really big issues, but that's, you know, one of the reasons my balance cream has tripeptide and other essential oils because you won't get those sunscreens. I have no, I've been sun worshiper all my life. I don't have sunspots on my chest, yeah. on my face. And periodically, it's been about three years, but an intense pulse light, IPL therapy for women out there that now, I, I like I have to schedule one eventually. But because the balance cream got rid of sunspots, that's a really yeah. good thing. Vitamins, nutrients, antioxidants, that's supportive too, but don't, you know, like we don't want, we don't want to burn. It's, it's painful, but we do want the benefit of the sun without the, the risk yeah, or side it's, effects. It's it's a balance. You know, I also have seen a lot of people in the kind of wellness space or non-toxic space kind of want to want to DIY their sunscreen. Like I can make that at home. I actually don't recommend that at all, even though technically it's possible. I really don't recommend people do that because the formulations of these sunscreens are formulated so that the application is really consistent. If you're DIYing it, you're not these you can DIY you know, laundry detergent and you can DIY moisturizer. But for something like a sunscreen, I really do recommend people not DIY this because the risk of skin cancer, it's the number one type of cancer in the United States is skin cancer. And I think too, like the, I think the marketing, like, you know, sunglasses, even for dark skin people, they yeah. feel like they have to put on sunscreen too. I'm like, please honor the intelligence of your body. And I would just say, because the FDA regulation, there are some really, really amazing brands out there that don't put sunscreen on it because you can't call it a sunscreen unless you have FDA clearance. And I can tell you that is really, really expensive to get. I mean, sure. for a small yeah. business, it's, it's prohibitive to get. Yeah. So you can like, I think Primal Life Organics, actually the maker of 
Uh, Hint Water, Kara created a sunscreen product that can be used, Anne Marie Gianni. I mean, I used Native while I was away and another one that I got at, I uh, forget the name of it right now, but there are some, again, good, good brands to look at, and especially yeah. when we're putting things on our children. But remember, a light wrap. I mean, in the Middle East, they wore, you know, very loose cotton garbs and, and head protection. But, you know, after a while, it's, let's get and the benefits of that. that. The amount or percentage of the active ingredients of zinc oxide um, needs to be enough. So, you know, 15% at a minimum, there are some that have 20, 25% as a 23%, I think is the highest I've seen. But I remember years ago, I went to Hawaii to visit a friend. Um, I bought a, you know, not non-toxic natural sunscreen that was a spray. And I didn't this years ago. And this is uh, before I started doing this work, but so I knew less of, at then. And it had a really, really low amount of zinc oxide in it. And it was spray application, you know, just to... Yeah. And I burned to a crisp on my first day. It was, ah. I was so much pain. I had to go the following day to a surf shop to buy a long sleeve rash guard. And I wore that shirt the entire rest of my trip because I couldn't tolerate any sun exposure. Oh, that's um, terrible. Yeah, I, I, that I, was I me. That was me two years ago in, in Cabo. I, I fell asleep after having a couple of glasses of tequila on the, we'll do it. the, yeah, the <laughs> lounge chair. That totally different reason I burned, yeah. but... Yeah, even I burned. So yeah, Vera, thank I mean, you. I wish we could talk more and where there's so much more. But I think number one, alleviating the fear, yeah. alleviating the fear of what that our what our bodies can get rid of, recognizing that we do have to legislate to prohibit these legacy toxins. I mean, they're legacy toxins because they persist for generations. We know up to seven generations and that is harming and genetically modifying the uh, genetic expression and epigenetic expression of our of our bodies of our youth of our unborn children so we have to stop that because it is per, there are many of these that are persistent and yeah. the complications ramifications of which are still being uncovered and i think it's and oftentimes like i didn't know about hirschsprungs like was had a environmental connection and it's critical what about autism what about you know the list goes on so looking at these things being active for ourselves being politically active voting with our dollars every time that we can to the best of our ability growing what we can so you know you know cooking at home what you can so you know what you put in your food and and on your food is is important too so the little things that we can do on a regular basis are really powerful now our audience can find you and your information on instagram at the environmental toxins nerd environmental toxins nerd great site by the way and your website is laura adler l-a-r-a adler.com you've got great stuff there including checklist free stuff information blogs podcasts and you are definitely a wealth of information and i also want i love to give the website ewg.org forward slash skin deep to look at your products and make my kids look at their products and make that choice like you know if you you want something you love that you know that cover girl what concealer i'm like going oh, buy that cover girl yeah. but look on you know ewg.org forward slash skins deep and what is that rated i need to know that before you buy the product anything for me it's like the kids anything greater than one or two uh you can't buy it 
So, and I think it's really important to set some guidelines and just awareness, awareness, and to take away the fear. Is there any final comment you want to share with our audience, Lara? Um, just that we do the best that we can, right? We're never going to get to zero. That's actually not the goal. The goal is just to minimize exposure in the places that we can. Stress is also toxic. So we really do have to balance taking this information in and taking action. And, you know, I really just am kind of a cheerleader for, for doing whatever you can. And, and that's going to be different for everybody. Yeah. And I think coming from this, what I want my audience to go away with is just what's your one next right step? What's the one next right step that you can do for you, that you can do for your family? Is there one change you can make? Maybe it's on a monthly basis or a weekly yeah. basis or a daily basis. What's the one change that you can make that can really decrease that toxic burden on your life and your family's life? And respond. Let me know what it is. You guys, thank you for being in the Girlfriend Doctor community. Thank you for listening to this show. Your reviews matter. So wherever you're listening to this podcast, please leave a five-star review. I appreciate that so much. It helps us raise in rankings in the websites, iTunes, Spotify, Podcast Attic, wherever you're listening and appreciate that. Share this episode with good faith and friendship to your girlfriends out there as well, friends and family. So much information in here that we just need to bring awareness to. Thank you guys for being here. Till next time.